Heavenly Father, just thank you for this morning, for your love towards us, and speaking into our hearts, and Lord, lifting our spirits. And as we draw together now to hear your word, we ask that you will anoint your servant to bring the word, Lord, with clarity. Anoint his lips, Lord, that he'll discharge your word in a faithful way and glorify your name. And on our, for our part, Lord, we pray that you will give us listening ears. Lord, that as we hear your word opened up to us and explained to us and challenge us, Lord, that it will shape our thinking, it will deepen our understanding of you, Lord, and it will draw us closer to Jesus. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Good morning. Great. So we're starting a new series this morning on uh, Belong, Believe, Become. And it's going to be over the next kind of month or so, which is really exciting. Um, I'm really conscious they've, they've shortened the stage quite a lot. I feel like I'm very scared here. And it's a lot, not a lot of space. Um, but um, this morning I want to start, and I'm going to, I'm going to start by telling a story. Everybody like stories? Great. Everybody sitting comfortably? Then I'll begin. Not Richard. Okay. Someone get Richard a cushion. Um, so I want you to imagine, if you will, a man as he wakes up in the morning. He dresses himself in all his finery, puts clothes on. They're beautiful, soft against his skin, comfortable beyond measure. They're tailored, the perfect fit. Even Danny, Danny Bullen would be proud of these. Gold chains on his hands and around his neck, rings on his fingers covered in precious stones, all to demonstrate just how important he really is. He sits down to a breakfast that's fit for a king. Everything you could possibly want. You name it, he's got it. And he leaves his house to head to the temple. He's gotten used to it by now. The silence as he walks along the streets. Young children stare Adults turn their gaze away. The really religious ones, they cross the road. They shake the dust off their cloaks. Some of the more aggressive, the militant ones, they mutter insults under their breath. But most go silently by. But the judgment resounds loud and clear. It echoes, it reverberates off the walls of the street surrounding him. The judgment rings out. As he enters the temple, he does his best to avoid the scrutiny. Visiting during the quiet parts of the day, he stands at a distance, somewhere near the back, and confesses his sins. But he's confident that if he asked them, everyone else would do a really good job of confessing his sins for him. Sometimes it feels like they're written across his forehead. Traitor. Sinner, failure, they stick to him as he walks through. As he leaves the temple, the tension rises as he passes groups of people arriving to pray. The words of prayer and gossip are intermingled. It's hard for him to distinguish which is which. Words like, thank you God that I'm not like that sinful tax collector. The noise rises to a crescendo and then stops as he draws near. Silence again. 
down to whispers. How did he end up here? He asks himself. Alone, a traitor, the butt of jokes, the topic of prayer and conversations alike, avoided. After all, he was rich. Weren't rich weren't riches supposed to make you happy? Weren't rich people supposed to have lots of friends? Didn't I deserve happiness, he asked himself. Don't I deserve the opportunities? I work hard. But even my family don't visit me. The traitor. The religious groups don't accept me. I wasn't good enough for them. But one group of people were ready to accept me. Open hands. Shaking my hands as I enter. The Romans. They were always on the lookout for new tax collectors. The decision wasn't hard. Make a living. A good one at that. Make new friends. Build a new life. After all, the new life was a necessity when you betrayed your entire country, your friends, your family, your neighbors. Only, it wasn't that simple. To the Romans, I was just another employee from the occupied nation. I'd never be on a level with them, let alone a friend. Even when I extorted more and more, and I put my boots on the neck of my own people even harder, I still didn't win their favor. They could barely even muster a smile in my direction. But then one day, he heard it. A snatch of rumor, a snippet of conversation. A Messiah? Another Savior? Not another one, he said. Not another one of these people with delusions of grandeur. Everyone in Israel is waiting for this coming Messiah to come and vanish, vanquish the enemies, to destroy this oppressive system, the system that holds him up. They'll fail like the rest. Messiahs these days, they're ten a penny. Another one rising up swiftly, but dealt with by the Roman army. Remember Athrongs? Of course we all do. Um, he thought himself as the Messiah. A shepherd boy turned rebel king. The messiah reigned that lasted all of two years as the Romans sorted him and his brothers out pretty swiftly. Another messiah waiting to be dealt with. But this one seemed a little different. There's a story. There's a story moving around about a guy called Levi. He was one of the tax collectors in a place called Capernaum. He's joined them. They call him Matthew. What's his game? Perhaps the tide is turning. Perhaps this Messiah is the Messiah. Perhaps he'll succeed where others have failed. Perhaps he'll overthrow the government, the system, everything. So he waited. He waited for Jesus to come to Jericho. Waiting was like an eternity for Zacchaeus. An eternity of marginalization, an eternity of being ignored, an eternity of judgment, an eternity of whispers behind his back. But then one day, it happened. Everyone was on the move. There was an energy and electricity about the town. Stalls were left abandoned. 
Crowds were rushing. Crowds were pressing. There was jostling for position. People were shouting to try and get a look at this man they called Jesus, the man they hoped would be the Messiah. The Savior was here in Jericho. And this, this is where we get to meet Zacchaeus in Luke 19. It says that Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was, this, there was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region. He'd become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. He ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. He said, Zacchaeus, come quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give away half of my wealth to the poor. Lord, if I have cheated people in their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the son of man, that's the name that Jesus used to describe himself, came to seek and save those who are lost. Zacchaeus ran. Zacchaeus climbed in order to catch but a glimpse of Jesus as he passed by. That was all he could hope for, was a snatched glimpse of Jesus as he passed by. We don't know why he did it. Perhaps it's because messiahs were commonly revolutionaries and threatened to overthrow the system, destroy his life, his livelihood. After all, being an influential man in Jericho and the wider region, this chief tax collector, if the Messiah succeeded, then he'd be left with nothing. He'd be bankrupt. No social standing, no hope for the future, no friends, no family to rely on because he was a traitor. On the other hand, perhaps he was hopeful. Perhaps he'd been waiting, desperate for a change in his own life. He'd heard the story about Levi, the tax collector in Capernaum, and how he'd converted, given up his job, left everything, and he'd become one of Jesus' inner circle, one of the followers, even taking on a new name of Matthew, which means gift of God. He may well have been aware of Jesus' words recorded in the Sermon on the Mount. He was a man of means, so perhaps he could have traveled. Perhaps it wasn't the first time he heard Jesus speak. Perhaps he knew the words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Perhaps. We don't know. But what we do know is that he ran ahead of the crowd. We do know that he climbed the tree to catch a glimpse of Jesus. It would have been out of character for a rich person in those times, not only to run, but to climb a tree. Generally, these activities were considered shameful. 
he was willing to shame himself in front of what in all likelihood would have been the entire city just to catch a glimpse of Jesus. Maybe it's that the crowds forced him to behave that way. I mean, at the end of the day, Zacchaeus was no ordinary rich man. It wasn't that he was just a rich man, but he was a tax collector, an unclean sinner, a traitor to his people, a liar and a thief. What purpose did he have listening to the Messiah of the Jews anyway? He'd betrayed them. This isn't your Messiah anymore. He's not your savior. He is not here to save you. You've turned your back. You've turned away. He's not here for you. He's here for us, the people who stayed true. That's what the message would have been coming back to him from that crowd of people. He's not your Messiah. You are not worthy of hearing Jesus. You are not worthy of following this Messiah. You're not worthy of being part of God's intervention in the world. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt excluded like that? I know I have. And you're in good company. The people surrounding Jesus would have made it clear to Zacchaeus that he was not worthy. He was not to be a part of this message of hope. He was not to be a part of this message of redemption. So whatever Zacchaeus' reasons for wanting to see Jesus that day, God had a purpose. God had a plan. And God, once again, chose a traitor in the city of Jericho to begin his journey of redemption for the people of Israel and ultimately the world. In case you're interested, the other story of redemption that starts in Jericho is the one where the Israelites cross over the Jordan into the promised land for the first time. And the traitor on this occasion, a woman called Rahab. You can look this up in Joshua 2 if, you, uh, if you'd like to later on. But Rahab is recognized for her faith when she finds a place to hide the Israelite spies as they come to take possession of the promised land. And so the story of occupying God's promised rest for the Israelites begins with a traitor in Jericho. Twice that happens. And on top of that, the promise, the promise that Rahab is given, the promise that she gets is the same promise that Zacchaeus gets. And that's that she finds a place in the family of Jesus Christ. She finds a place in the family of redemption. And so does Zacchaeus. Because Rahab gets listed in the first chapter of Matthew in the family tree of Jesus Christ. And Luke records what Jesus said to Zacchaeus is that he is a true son of Abraham. And what does that mean? Well, Abraham had two children. And what it meant was that this child, this true son, was a descendant, not by physical descent, although both his children were, but by faith. 
Read around this story of Abraham and you'll quickly discover that one of his children was born by faith. And so when he says a true son of Abraham, born by faith is what it means. Not by a natural descent, but by a faith-based decision to choose to be a part of that family. And so Zacchaeus' actions, choosing to turn his back on a way of life, which led him away from God, away from God's people. When he chose to turn back, Jesus said that he was making a faith-based decision to be a part of the family of God again. And this would have been well understood by those who were listening, who clung to this idea that because they were physically descended from Abraham as a people, that they were justified, that they were saved, that they were the ones who were in the right And then Jesus turns it all on its head and says that this person here, this traitor, this excluded person, this sinner, this is the one who Jesus said is truly part of that that family. That would have been pretty offensive to hear at the time, to hear words like that. And so Jericho was the beginning of Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem and ultimately the cross. And shortly before we meet Zacchaeus in the book of Luke, in Luke 18, Jesus predicts his own death. It says these words, it says, taking the 12 disciples aside, of which Matthew was one of them, Jesus said, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He'll be handed over to the Romans, and he will be mocked, treated shamefully, and spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. But they didn't understand any of this. The significance of his words were hidden from them. They failed to grasp what he was talking about. Jesus predicts his own death. And the disciples didn't get it. If Zacchaeus had heard these words, I doubt he would have got it too. And if we heard these words, if you or I heard these words too, I am confident that we wouldn't have got it either. We would have missed the significance. Feels like it's obvious now the benefit of hindsight, living 2,000 years later with access to all of the scripture and all of the experience of what happened over the Easter weekend and on Resurrection Sunday. I mean, it seems obvious, doesn't it? It's there in the Psalms. Isaiah prophesied about it. The Messiah must suffer and must die for our transgressions. Any number of verses we could scrape together as a room, we could pull them all together and we could go, look, wasn't it obvious? But they wouldn't have got it. And neither would we. If we lived in that time, and that's because there's one reason, and it's worldview. It's worldview. Worldview means we have a particular way of seeing the world, looking at it. And every single one of us has a worldview. We have a view and understanding, and a lot of that is shaped by those who are around us, by the society we live in. And nothing that anyone can say will change someone's view on the world, because it's built up over a period of time, and it's deeply ingrained. The people around the disciples would have known the scriptures. They learned them by heart until the age of 11, at least the first five books of the Bible. I'm sure you guys all did that too. Um, 
You're supposed to laugh at that point. Nobody laughed. Um, clearly, you all actually did learn the Bible by heart until age 11, didn't you? Um, but they'll have, sung the, they'll have sung the Psalms. They'll have heard the prophets taught in the temple. But the Israelite worldview was that the Messiah was a warrior. A warrior coming to vanquish their enemies. To get rid of the Roman oppressors. To deal with them once and for all. And usher in the reign of God. But Jesus didn't fit into this worldview. He lived a different way. Your friends, your family, your neighbors, your colleagues. They all have a worldview too. Maybe it's that Jesus was a good man. He taught some wise things, but not much else. That doesn't really mean anything for me. Maybe it's that God is angry. He's got a big stick. He's waiting just to hit you when you get out of line. Maybe it's that um, we don't need religion. We don't need religion anymore. We don't need a God. We've dealt with God now. We've got science. It's sorted it all out. It's all good. I don't know what your friend's worldview is. I don't know what your family's worldview is. I know what a few of mine are. But the thing is, I don't care. Because I said that nothing will change someone's worldview. No clever argument will change someone's worldview. But I do know what destroys worldviews, and I do know what destroys wrong thinking. And we see it in this story of Zacchaeus. We're a week out from Easter. Where the disciples arrived at Jesus' tomb and saw it was empty. And the Bible says that they believed. It isn't clear on exactly what they believed. But one thing is for certain. That over the Easter weekend, their worldview shifted. Over those three days, something about what they understood of the Messiah. Something about what they understood of the kingdom of God shifted. Their Messiah wasn't the warrior God that they thought he was going to be. Zacchaeus spent an evening in the presence of Jesus and was transformed. Jesus said, salvation has come to this home today. Salvation. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. As we start this series on belonging, believing, and ultimately becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus showed Zacchaeus what it was like to belong. He cut through the silence. He cut through the loneliness. He cut through the isolation. He cut through all of those negative labels that people placed on Zacchaeus. And he showed him what it was like to belong. He restored him back into the family of Abraham, the people of which he turned his back on. And as a church, we need to go and do likewise. The church must be a place where people who know Jesus because of our love for one another. That is what Jesus says. He says, people will know who I am because of your love for one another. Your love. We need to make a special effort to reach out to everyone who enters this building and our wider community. Because when people come here 
and they meet us, they're more likely to meet Jesus. And that is where transformation happens. It's not in a clever argument, smart words, or you convincing someone. It's about meeting Jesus. And I truly believe that in a church building surrounded by people who know Jesus Christ for themselves, who have a relationship with him, people are more likely to meet Jesus in the way that Zacchaeus did. You know, Zacchaeus' story is, uh, is a one of a kind in the Bible. There's no other story quite like this one. It's quite an interesting one. And it stands out specifically within the Bible because it's a story of a rich person finding faith. And it's a bit of a strange one because a lot of other stories, you see people finding faith perhaps who are, who are poor, You see people finding faith who are sick, who've been isolated for those reasons. You get lots of repeat stories around that. But there's one story that stands out where a rich, influential person, the rich, influential person in the gospel turns to Jesus. And that is Zacchaeus' story. And I believe it's there because it's to remind us that every single person is at risk of being excluded. Every single person is at risk of being isolated. And we can get caught up in wrong thinking that just because someone is is rich, that they've got everything sorted. Every person is at risk of being lonely. Young, old, rich, poor. Someone who's lived in Bradford their entire lives. Someone who's just moved to Bradford last week. Everyone is at risk of being excluded. And that is why the story is here, to remind us that we need to build a church that helps people to belong to each other, to belong together, so that there is a chance, there is a chance that they will meet Jesus in this place and be transformed. And so I believe that there's there's two types of people in this story, there's two kinds of people, there's always two kinds of people, it's just the way it works. There's three points in a sermon, two kinds of people. Um, I think there's those who feel like uh, Zacchaeus. Someone who's searching for Jesus for whatever reason. Perhaps you're searching for Jesus to disprove him. Perhaps you're searching for Jesus because you really feel like something's got to change. You feel excluded, separated from everything that's going on. It seems to make sense to everybody else. Maybe you've got a distorted view of God, or you've had a bad experience with God. This story shows that Jesus sees through the crowd and points you out and says, I want to spend time with you. I want to get to know you. I want to see your situation changed. I want to see you changed. That's the first person, those like Zacchaeus. And then I think... There's the other kind of person, the person who's part of the crowd, the ones huddled around Jesus, following around, pressing in, trying to get closer, just to be able to hang on every word that comes out of his mouth. You don't want to miss a word. You've got your eyes locked on Jesus. You've got your ears trained to him. But what Jesus shows is that he's looking out while we're looking in. 
and we're looking towards Jesus, but when we should be following his gaze out into the crowd, his gaze to those who are in need, who are in need. So I believe it's right that we look to Jesus, we look to him for our salvation, but when we look to him, we follow his eye line and we say, who are you looking at, Jesus? Who do you care for? Even when Jesus was on the cross, dying the most grueling and painful death that the Romans could think up at the time, Jesus' eyes looked out at the crowd and he had compassion. He looked out at his mother in grief and he looked out at his friend, John, and he said, John, this lady is now your mother. Mother, This man is now your son. So when we look to the cross, as so often we're counseled to do so in the church, look to the cross for your salvation. But as you look there at your Messiah on the cross, remember that even in that situation, when he is in the most dire need, he's looking back out at the crowd for those who are lost, for those who are excluded, and for those who are in need of his love. And his inclusion. Which are you? Do you need Jesus to come and meet with you today? To invite you into a relationship? Invite you into his family? Or do you need to look and stare Jesus in the face? And follow his gaze out to see who he's searching for with his eyes. Who he's longing to include. This morning I want to do something a little bit different. Um, some of you know that I'm a big fan of the Anglican traditions. Um, and um, in the Anglican tradition, they, they have this activity that's part of every single service where they stand up, okay? And this is a bit strange for us English people. Uh, they stand up, and the person at the front says, peace be with you. And everyone else then says back, and also with you. Don't worry, I'm not going to get you to do that part. But after that bit, okay, what they do is they walk around the room shaking each other's hands, looking each other in the eyes, which is even more weird for us English peoples, um, and we say, peace be with you, and respond with, peace be with you. And this morning, I want to encourage us to do something along those lines. I want to get us moving around the room. I want to get us meeting and shaking hands with different people who we wouldn't normally shake hands with. Just so you know, I'm going to be as freaked out as you are, okay? Not very good with new people, so be gentle with me. But I want us to do that. But before we do that, I want us just to just to stand up for a moment. And if Mark can come in and just play a little music in the background or something, I don't know. Um, I want us to stand up, and I want us to approach this with a prayerful heart. I want us to approach this with a prayerful heart. I want us to ask God, is there anything that he wants us to say to someone else? Is there a message that he's got? And if you don't feel comfortable with any of this stuff, just walk around the room, shake someone's hand, look them in the eyes and say, peace be with you. No one's going to worry about that. We're all going to do it. We're all going to feel equally weird. Okay? It's going to be great. Just trust me on this one. But let's just, let's just pray. We'll take a few moments just to listen, make some space. Just open up your heart and say, God, is there, is there anything you want to say through me to someone here in this room today?
So Father God, we come before you this morning. We come before you humbly and we thank you. We thank you that you have included each and every one of us. Near, far, young, old, rich, poor. You included us. We thank you that when we were stood in the crowd, you looked out from the middle and you locked eyes with us and you said you are welcome in my presence, you are welcome in my family and as a family of believers here in Bradford we just make some space now make some space and ask that the same Jesus who walked the earth will come and walk amongst us now. The same Jesus who spoke words of love, words of affirmation, words of encouragement, words of challenge, will come and speak to us and through us this morning. Come, Lord Jesus. When you feel ready, start wandering around. Start shaking people's hands. If you know them really well, give them a hug. I don't know, if you, or if you just like the look of them. And say, peace be with you. And I don't want to see people sticking in their rows. I want to see you moving around, okay?
really appreciate you guys. We're going to close the service here. Please keep mingling and shaking hands and saying peace be with you. If you need prayer, there is uh, there are seats at the back. If you need prayer, please go to the those comfortable seats at the back. Teaser coffees are being served in the uh, back. Thank you. Bye.